Well, good morning again. I've got a question to start off. I like starting with questions because I'm an inquisitive guy. But uh, who likes suffering? <laughs> what? Okay, who likes, who likes uh, storms? Huh? Going through storms in life? Uh, yeah, I tricked you there. Okay, well, does, does your life ever feel like it's a battle? Yeah? Do you ever feel like maybe there are times when the whole world is against you? No matter what you do, no matter how much you're trying, no matter all the things that you try and do, it just feels like everything's against you. Uh, does it ever feel like maybe even though it's only been a week into the new year, it's been a month? No? No, maybe? Well, we start off every new year, or at least I do, with so much vim and vigor. We're excited. We're, we're excited for what happens, but sometimes that, that just can die off so quickly. Maybe we set a goal and we stumble, and then we just give up. It's just easier to give up rather than restarting. Well, this morning, we're going to b- look at one of the, the letters written by Paul. And we're looking at the, the second letter that he wrote to his protege, a young pastor named Timothy. And we're looking at the, uh, it's called Second Timothy, quite appropriately, because he wrote it to Timothy, and it was the second one. You know, the Bible makes sense sometimes. It's kind of logical like that. But this letter is one of a few that are actually called pastoral letters. And the reason is because Paul, as an older pastor, was writing these to, uh, to two pastors, Titus and Timothy, who were younger pastors. He was an older man who was giving them advice and trying to give them some wisdom, trying to pass on to what he knew. And this morning, we're going to look at this and see uh, how we can endure this life, not just putting up with suffering, but maybe going through suffering for a purpose. And not only just getting by, but thriving through the power of the Holy Spirit. But before we go any further, would you please join me in uh, praying before we start off here. Father God, we love you. And thank you for your opportunity this morning to study your word in this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. And thank you for inspiring Paul to write this letter, which we now have today as one of the the books of the Bible. And thank you for that, that inspiration, Lord. And help us to understand not only the words of Paul, but also what you are wanting to speak to us through it this morning. Help us to, to not just hear from your words, but to apply it to our life this morning. May my words bring out and help to highlight the truth that you gave to Paul. And whatever I say this morning that's not of you, may it fall on deaf ears. But whatever is from you, Lord, whatever is meant to be heard, I pray that each one here, including myself, would apply it to their lives. That we would leave here with something to do. Help us to be strengthened by the grace that comes through your indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And from the Lord Jesus, that we may endure suffering. Not just putting up with it, but maybe even joyfully as faithful, good soldiers of Christ Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. So I would encourage you now to join with me in, in uh, turning over, just eye sw- uh, swiping over in your eye Bible, rather, as I did earlier, to 2 Timothy 2, 1-7. You know, Michael caught me off guard there. He said, Turn, grab the NIV Bible beside you. I didn't have one. I didn't want to read out of the ESV, but what do you do? So I'm giving you time to prepare yourself, swipe over there or grab there, whatever translation, but I'll be reading out of the ESV. But before we, uh, before we get into the passage, I just want to give you a little bit of uh, background for what's happening. So Paul, as I said, is an older pastor writing this letter to, to Timothy as a younger pastor. And he's trying to pass on some of his wisdom that he's earned. 
And this is to help uh, Timothy with his ministry. And at this time, he's uh, the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And so you can understand what it was like. Uh, this is called Paul's dying letter by some. And that's because it's the last letter that we have that Paul wrote before he died. And it was written shortly before his death. And because it's his very last letter, it actually has great significance for the church. And death tends to give people perspective on their life. It helps us to understand what's truly important. As, and as we learn through Paul's example, what's important to him is Jesus. And Timothy is in the middle of a hard season in his church. He's pastoring a very difficult church. Uh, the city was materialistic, and there were cults that were prevalent. And the biggest uh, temple in the city was Artemis. And the city was actually uh, famous for this temple of Artemis. And Timothy was naturally and actually a timid person. And he was very young to have so much responsibility. And now I know this could never happen here, so I, don't, I wouldn't even want to bother saying this. But some people even looked down on Timothy because he was young. And in the, in the first letter uh, that Paul wrote to Timothy, he actually told him not to let anyone look down on him because he was young. Paul had gifted Timothy and filled him with the Holy Spirit and given him the responsibility over the church. So his age wasn't meant to be the, the main thing that people were looking at. They were meant to look at him as the person that God had given leadership over the, that church at that time. So in 2 Timothy 2, 1-7, it says this. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is a hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Now notice how Paul started off this section. He said, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And then share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Now, some of you might be sitting there thinking to yourself, wait a minute. Strengthened, uh, strengthened by the grace, okay, that, that part I'm good with. But share in suffering. Now, is that encouraging? He's saying, uh, the example that you have is Christ Jesus. Share in his suffering. Doesn't that sound like a terrible idea? Doesn't that sound like something that we don't want to go through? As I asked you guys earlier, who likes to suffer? None of us. It's naturally against our inclinations. We don't want to suffer we actually want to go after pleasure. We want to go after joy. We want to go after happiness. But something, uh, suffering is something that we should never be surprised about if we are a Christian. In fact, if you read the Bible, you should have very much fair warning for it. If you, when you became a Christian, you were told that you were signing up for a life that was easier, I'm sorry to tell you this morning that you were lied to. That is not what the Bible says. For following Jesus is actually hard work. 
And uh, Jesus doesn't make our lives easier. He makes them better. But it would be easier to just ignore Jesus. It would be easier just to ignore and just go after pleasure. But instead, following Jesus requires hard work, and it involves plenty of pain and hardship. In fact, if you say you're a Christian and you can't point to hardships in your life, then I would actually ask you, are you truly following Jesus? Following Jesus means that we become more and more like Jesus. And it actually suffering and hardships and persecution is a sign that you are following Jesus obediently. Yay, suffering. Yeah? There's actually a whole realm of Christianity that, that's, uh, Christianity, I'll use in bubble, Arab quotes, that says that uh, Jesus came and died so that you can have health, wealth, and prosperity. And that if you have enough faith, you won't go through any pain. You will have uh, an abundance of wealth if you name it and claim it and say, I have victory in Christ. I will have everything I desire. God wants to bless us with everything we could possibly want. And that sounds really nice. And the thing is, this is rooted in materialistic Western culture. Where we already have so many things. And yet we just want more. This didn't come out of a third world nation where uh, they, they barely have enough food to survive each day. This idea came out of a place where people were already blessed abundantly, beyond measure, and yet they thought, I need more. I want more. But the gospel that we actually has is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in church history, the gospel actually spread faster the more God's people were persecuted. Imagine a puddle of oil that you light on fire, and then you hit it with a rock. That is the picture of what happened with the early church. The early church was in one place, and then they got persecuted, and they spread all over the place because they were being killed so fast they had to flee. And then churches started all over the place. So if you were to have a, a, a bowl of oil that you lit on fire in the middle of the sanctuary, and then you splashed it, and the fire spread all over the place, that's the picture of how God spread the church. He spread it through persecution. And so when you sign up to become a Christian, you're actually signing up to live a life like Christ did. You're following a life of suffering. He was homeless. He was penniless. He was mocked, betrayed by his friends, tortured, and killed on a cross. Jesus' life was hard, painful, full of suffering, and then he died an excruciating death. So how could his followers expect anything different? In fact, Jesus' life is so hard that it baffles our imagination that he went through that for us. That's the mystery of love. Jesus went through that knowing that that's what it would take to redeem humanity. And yet he still decided to go through that. And in the prophecies about Jesus from Isaiah 52 and 53, it says this. I'll just read a few selections here. In 13 to 15 of 52, it says, uh, this, and this is sometimes in some Bibles, it's called the suffering servant. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, 
and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. This is talking about his crucifixion. They, could, they couldn't even recognize that he was a human being anymore. He was so beaten up. And then it says, So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. And then in the next chapter, 3 to 9, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. That passage deserves five sermons just on that, but this is a prophecy of Jesus before he ever was born. This is a prophecy of Jesus before he ever came to earth. God told the prophet Isaiah that this is what was going to come. So the people were, in Jesus' day were surprised that he was the king because he wasn't the glorious king on the throne. He didn't overthrow the Roman government. He came to die on the cross. That was a surprise to them. So how could we now this day be surprised when we are looking back at the Messiah, Jesus, that sometimes this life is hard, that sometimes it's difficult? If you say that Jesus is your Lord and that he is, uh, that he is your Lord of your life and that you have given him, he is your example. If he's your master and you are the servant that you serve and follow, then how can you expect to have a different life? Doesn't that seem strange to us? Don't we think, well, Jesus suffered, so then why do I have to? The suffering that we go through is different. Now, does it seem strange to you that a pastor is standing up here telling you about how hard life is if you're a Christian? Does that seem like an evangelistic message? Come and be a Christian. Your life will be way harder. You will have more suffering. You will have more joy. Yeah, I'm getting some thumbs down over here. Amazing rally and cry. Well, I don't want to be accused of not telling the truth. But that's not where it ends. And that's not the hope. The hope is not necessarily in this life. And as I mentioned before, Paul is writing this letter from a prison. And he's about to die for his faith and for preaching Jesus. Now that sounds like hard work and suffering to me. And now this is completely opposed to some of the popular message we hear these days. Like I said, the preachers who preach prosperity gospel or health wealth. The kingdom that we, see, that we seek to build is not of this world. There was a, a pastor I heard over Christmas and uh, his whole sermon was, was quite good. But there was one point that stuck with me. You can either be building your kingdom or God's kingdom. Now, 
it would be nice to have my own little kingdom. It would be nice to have a place where I was served. It would be nice to have a place where I had a big castle and a house. But I would much rather have eternal life with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he gives that to us. He gives eternal salvation with him and calls us sons and daughters. And then we inherit what he has. We are a part of his kingdom. So we can either be trying to build our own little temporary kingdoms here on earth and reject Jesus, or we can live life for Jesus in the short time and have eternity with him in the best possible place that could ever be imagined. It baffles our imaginations. Harrison and I have had so many discussions trying to imagine what is heaven going to be like? Is it going to be like the, the Simpsons where it's all in the clouds with the little uh, guy struggling the harp? Because that, that sounds a little boring to me. I don't really like singing out loud that much. But, uh, and you guys don't either when I sing. But, uh, but that sounds boring. But it, you can't even imagine how amazing it's going to be. Because our, even our imaginations are flawed. The best things that you can possibly imagine... The, the thing that I think about is it's not just sitting around like on a pleasure cruise. Work is, work is designed and meant to be purposeful and meaningful. And the best days, of, uh, best days of our lives are usually when we're doing something that we feel like we're accomplishing something, when we're helping people, when we're loving other people, and we feel like we're actually doing something. He- work in heaven will be like that, but it'll actually be perfect. And so we'll actually have meaning, we'll actually have purpose, and it'll go on and on and on and on. It'll be amazing. And that's, that's the hope that we have. So either we're building our kingdom or we're building God's kingdom. We're either looking for health, wealth, and prosperity in this life or we're looking for eternal life. It's one or the other. And so if we're choosing the eternal, if we're choosing the greater, if we're choosing the perfection, then we may have to put up with a little bit of suffering. In order to endure suffering, though, God doesn't just leave us and say, get through your life, and if you, if you get through and you do pretty good, then you get into heaven. That's not, that's not what the gospel says. The gospel says that when we are saved, he gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us health. He gives us life. He gives us what we need to get through each day. So when we are going through suffering, we don't need our strength. We actually need a strength that we can't possibly possess. Paul tells us that we get it through the grace of Jesus and that we are strengthened by this grace. God's grace comes in a number of different forms. Two examples that I'll I'll just go into are saving grace and empowering grace. So God's grace saves us from eternal separation by his sacrificial uh, work on the cross. So Jesus dying on the cross was making a way so that we could have a reconciled relationship with him. He paid the price of sin so that we didn't have to pay it. And that is his saving grace. So when we come to faith in him, when we say and declare, Jesus, I'm tired of living for myself. I'm tired of going through this life trying to build my own kingdom. I want to build your kingdom. I want to surrender to you. At that point, we are saved. And we have the proof and the witness of the Holy Spirit indwelling presence in us. So Jesus lived the sinless life that we couldn't possibly have lived and died, as Isaiah references, in a horrific way as the perfect sacrificial lamb in order to give us a gift. And that gift is grace. And that gift is a gift that we don't deserve. 
The other type of grace is the grace of empowerment. It's the grace of the Holy Spirit working in our lives, helping us become more and more like Jesus every day and to live in obedience to him by spreading the hope of the gospel around us. Now, just a confession, but I'm personally way over my head as a pastor. I can't possibly do this on my own. I can't possibly show other people Jesus unless I know Jesus. I can't possibly preach the word without the Holy Spirit helping me. I can't possibly even pray prayers that will actually do anything without the Holy Spirit. And I would argue that would be the same for all of you. Nothing that we do can possibly be good enough for God unless he helps us. That's the empowering grace that we need. So each of us are in that same place. We need Jesus. We're in over our head. There's more to be done that could ever possibly be done. There's more that we could possibly do than we could ever accomplish. And there's always more. It doesn't seem like as much as we accomplish, there's always more to be done than there was before. And we're not strong enough on our own to make it through the circumstances that we're put in. We cannot achieve maturity in Jesus without his help. We're not on our own to do this, though. We aren't expected to, nor are we needed to. Jesus says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, My grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect. In what? In weakness. You don't need to be strong. You need to be weak. And that's good, because we're all weak. We're all imperfect. We're all broken. And so Jesus says, I don't need your strength. I'm strong enough. I need your weakness. I need you to admit that you need me. I need you to lay aside your supposed strength and say, Jesus, I can't do this. I'm tired of living this life by myself. I'm tired of suffering for my own mistakes or suffering just because of what I did. You know, in in, uh, persecution, there's two different types of persecution. There's being persecuted because you're being obedient to Jesus. And then there's being persecuted because you're being a jerk. And now I would much rather be persecuted for being obedient to Jesus. And so sometimes we go through struggles and we're like, well, it's just just because I'm Christian. That's why I'm going through it. But maybe we're not being gracious to people. Maybe if we're yelling at somebody and telling them to, to stop sinning or turn and burn... Maybe that's, maybe that's not the right way to do it. Maybe we need to love people. Now, continuing on, surrender is what makes us strong. So continuing this passage, Paul goes on to give us three analogies of how we can look at our lives and evaluate them. He talks about a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. And here we read again, starting in verse 3, uh, three to 6 here. It says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Is the hardworking farmer who ought to have his first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So the first thing Paul writes here is to share in suffering. Paul doesn't say to avoid suffering or pray against something. He simply says, share in suffering. Everyone experiences hard times. And while we could pray and we can hope that God takes away all of the hard circumstances that we go through, and, I, and he is able to, he doesn't. 
And on this side of heaven, we're not going to know why. It's like a tapestry that he's weaving, and we're looking at it from the bottom, and it just looks like a mess. We have no idea what he's doing, but he's doing something. But one of the things that he is doing is that God doesn't just care about our happiness. He cares about making us more like Jesus. And sometimes one of the best ways to do that is going through suffering. Because when life is hard, that's when we recognize we need help. And so how we act in times of hardships actually gives us an opportunity to become more like Christ if we cooperate with the Holy Spirit. Or instead, we could choose to act sinfully. We could be mad. We can just have a bad attitude or a bad attitude, as I like to call it. But I asked earlier if life sometimes feels like a battle. And you guys said yes. And sometimes we drift through this life and, and it seems like everything's okay, but we have an enemy. You and I both have an enemy, if you are a Christian, and that is Satan. And even if you're not, Satan is out to steal, kill, and destroy every single person in the world. He, he longs for death for everyone. He's our enemy. But we also have other people who fight against us. They antagonize us. And then, even then, we have another enemy that sometimes is a little bit more insipid and a little bit more hidden. And it's within us. In Romans, it says, the flesh is within us. And it resists what God wants us to do. And it wants to keep on sinning. And through the work of Christ on the cross, it's actually possible to choose not to sin. Paul said in his letter, but even though we have the ability to be free from sin, sometimes we still choose to be selfish. Or we choose the easier path. But a life of obedience in Jesus means that we choose to follow him above all else. It means we keep focused on Jesus and on the mission that he gave us like a faithful soldier who obeys his commands. And Jesus' command is to go into the world and make disciples in some places, no, in all nations. That is a huge thing, and I can't do that on my own. None of us can do it on our own. None of us can do it without the help of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is our commander, and his word is our instruction to us. So will you obey him? Or not? Will you do what he asks you to do? And now the second analogy that Paul gives us is that of an athlete. And uh, you could imagine here that he's talking about discipline, but actually the emphasis that he has here is focusing on rules. And I love playing sports and even learning a new one sometimes. But the first thing that you need to do when you start to play a new sport isn't just learn the new skills, but you actually need to learn the rules. Because otherwise, when you start playing, the referee starts blowing that stupid whistle over and over and over again. And you feel like you're doing something good, and then all of a sudden you're, you're told that you did an illegal play or did something wrong. Now, I, I don't want to ask for a show of hands here because uh, people might get judged here, but uh, sometimes people like to cheat when they play games. Like uh, Monopoly, there's that one where you stick the 500s under the board, but I, I would never know anyone who would do that. But... But then there's some people that really like sticking to the rules. And I, I would argue these two people shouldn't play games together because it kind of gets bad. But uh, when I was younger, I used, to, uh, I used to referee under six soccer. Has, has anyone ever watched under six soccer? It, it's not a sport. It's actually just the blob of a ball and a whole bunch of arms and legs flailing around. And there's no refereeing to be done. It's more like herding cats. And they don't pay you enough to do this. But these kids don't understand. They're just going after the ball. You can kind of teach them and you can kind of go. But then uh, has, has anyone ever watched rugby that has never played rugby? Now, now it just seems like uh, a chaotic, violent death match 
and it seems like, what do they do? They just hit each other, and then the ref blows his whistle every once in a while, and it just seems absolute chaos. But rugby is actually an interesting game because it actually has very strict rules. It has very careful rules for how you're allowed to hit people, where the ball is allowed to go, when it's allowed to go, when you're allowed to kick, how you score. And if you don't play by the rules, then you're constantly just either hurting other people, which rugby is actually in a lot of ways safer than football, for example. But, uh, but you have to know the rules in order to play the game. And that is what Paul is trying to tell us here. If we actually want to live a life that's obedient to Jesus, we have to know what we're supposed to do. And it's not about legalism. It's not about checking all the right boxes just for the sake of checking the boxes. It's actually about having a life of obedience to Jesus. And so we need to know what things are of value spiritually and what things are a waste of our time. What things do we actually need to be involved in or what things are a distraction? And Paul calls us to follow the rules that God gives us. We cannot earn grace but we can lose our eternal reward, it says. There's a difference in Christian life between, a gra- between grace and a reward. You're saved by grace, but you're actually rewarded for faithfulness. You can't lose grace necessarily, but you can lose your reward. So Paul is talking about the crown of victory here at the end of the finish line of life. A reward is not in this life, but it's actually in the next. So when Jesus tells us, hopefully, well done, good and faithful servant. At the end of life, and I so long to hear that phrase, when I'm reunited with, with, uh, face-to-face with Jesus in heaven, that's worth striving for to me. I don't care if there's actual crowns. I don't care if what there is in heaven, as long as Jesus says, well done. You lived a good life. You didn't live a life for yourself. See these people that are here, that's your whole, the Holy Spirit working through your life. I think that's the reward in heaven, to be honest. I think it's God showing us how he used us mightily in our lives. I think that's the reward. I don't think we're going to care about crowns of gold because the streets are paved with gold. Who cares? It's, it's nothing. I think what matters is the people that are there. I think that's what matters to God, too. So God wants to bless us in so many ways, but not necessarily in this life or in the ways that we imagine. For example, I've been blessed often through the hardest times of my life. It's those times I feel God's presence closest to me. And the blessings come not only so that I can get through it, or that I can follow the rules and the guidelines that he has set, but so that I can actually follow him obediently during those times. So that even in the midst of the storm, I can say, God is good. Look what he's doing. Look what God is going to do. I'm not downcast. I may be struggling. I may be sad. I may be hurt. But I can still have joy. And I can still have peace. So Paul is saying in this passage that it's, it's actually about living lives that reflect our love for Jesus and for others. And he's saying that uh, it's like a kid that's misbehaving. If you have a child that's misbehaving, do you reward that behavior with a cookie? If the child says, I want a cookie because I'm behaving so badly. No. You, you don't give them a cookie for behaving badly. You give them a cookie because you love them. They can't earn that cookie. And so God is saying that our good behavior isn't necessarily rewarded. It's our obedience to him. It's our loving him. Bad behavior instead results in discipline rather than a reward. So, so far, Paul has told us to be courageous and to fight hard like a soldier. 
And we're also supposed to be disciplined and follow the rules and principle of the Bible like an athlete does in his sport. And the last analogy that Paul gives us is that of a hardworking farmer. Now, I'm looking around here this morning, and I, I don't think I'd be off to guess that most of us aren't farmers. I'd, I've been around a lot of farmers, and I'm sure there is a, some farmers here, but uh, a lot of us aren't farmers for very good reasons. Farming is very hard work. You have to get up early and stay up late. And in Paul's day, this was even worse because they didn't have GPS. They didn't have pest and weed control. They didn't have genetically modified plants. They didn't have farm equipment. They had wood and metal pieces of tools and your back. They had some animals if you were well off. But, and I even spent a, a summer when I was in Bible college at an elk ranch, which sounds strange, and it was. <laughs> but, and I'll tell you maybe more another time, but one of, the, one of the things that was really interesting to me is just the mindset that farmers have. It's different from anyone else. And it's, it's just this, this absolute understanding that, of course, you're going to work from when you wake up in the morning until you go to bed. I can't believe that a hired worker wouldn't want to work all day long, every day. You know, you have a family you want to spend time with? I can't imagine what that would actually be like. That's, that's what farming is like in the summer because you've got to make hay while the sun shines, as the famous uh, poet would say. But uh, country reference, that's okay. Uh, but you have to work hard as a farmer. You can't, you can't just wait around and do kind of half work. In the, the summer, you have to work as long as you can possibly work because in the winter, you can't do anything. But, and Paul says in verse 6 here that the share of crops he's referring to is not the reward in this life, but it's eternal reward in heaven. So this is totally against the health and wealth gospel. That if you have enough faith, you'll be rich and have a life free of pain and suffering. In fact, it's actually just the opposite. Because Paul is a hard worker like a farmer. He actually says in the first letter of Corinthians that he worked harder than anyone else. But that he recognizes that it wasn't his, him that was able to do that. It was God's grace working in and through him. It was God's grace that enabled Paul to write so many letters of the New Testament. And the three analogies that, that Paul gives us all exemplified de delayed gratification. Now, our culture is inundated with instant gratification. We want something, and we want it now. You want to know something? You don't have to go look it up anymore. You can go on Google or Wikipedia. If, you, if you're hungry right now, you go for fast food. We're given what we want now without having to wait. And this is something that, that, as raising a toddler, is something that I'm trying to teach in her. I'm trying to, I, I'll, I'll even let her choose a tiny reward now or something bigger later. And I, and I watch her and I try and talk to her and explain the benefit of waiting for a reward rather than getting one right now. And yet, so when we're going through this life, though, this isn't easy. When all we see is pain and suffering and hardship, when we're suffering through things, when, our, when we're sick, when we're tired, when we're broken, when we look around at the world around us and all we can see maybe is brokenness. We just want it to end. We just want, we just want everything to go well now. But Jesus says that we're striving for heaven. So it's not all about later though. The Holy Spirit actually helps us not just to be saved so that one day we'll go to heaven. He actually is with us all throughout our lives. So the point is that we are here and we are left on heaven to do something. And he's here to help us do that. 
We're to make disciples as long as he keeps us here. So the gospel doesn't just save us from separation from God. It actually saves us to do his will on earth. So to summarize here, I want to leave you with one more thought from verse 7. And uh, after giving these analogies, Paul tells Timothy uh, to reflect on what he has heard. It says, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So think of the process of steeping tea or of marinating a nice juicy steak. I maybe shouldn't use that. It's a little bit close to lunch, but yeah. But it takes time. If you, if you want that tea to actually be strong enough, you have to wait whatever the directions say. It's anywhere between one to eight minutes or whatever. Eight minutes is pretty strong. I like strong tea, but, but you have to wait. You have to, you have to let it soak in, and that's what the word of God is like. You can't just read a verse a day and keep the devil away, as the old saying would go. You can't just run through the Bible and just, oh, I spent 30 seconds with God, I'm done. No, it's about soaking. It's about meditating. And now uh, I'm actually in the process of reading through the Bible in a year, and I'm over halfway. But I actually started in June, but that's okay. Uh, But you guys all thought I was amazing right there. But uh, while it's helpful to do that and to read broadly... I actually still take time to just sometimes soak on just one verse or just a few words, just a, a short little phrase, and just think about it. And, and sometimes when I'm reading four or five chapters, I feel like there's just one part that just God puts an exclamation mark, and I just sit and I think and I pray about that. And that's what it, that is what it uh, is supposed to be. While, we, while it's important to read the Bible all the way through, it's also important just to soak and see what God would want us to say in one thing. So Paul calls us to a hard life, and that's as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So what are we going to do about that calling? You do not have a choice of whether or not to endure suffering. I'm sorry. You have the choice of what you're going to do when suffering comes. Life is hard for all of us. Whether it, and actually, whether we're following Jesus or not, life is hard. And sometimes it gets harder when you start following Jesus because then you're against the world. But you have help. And you're not alone. We all have access to the Holy Spirit if we choose to give our lives to Jesus and to follow with him. And now, uh, just to close, I just want to say that uh, there's, a, there's a story of a young person that's so encouraging to me. I read it years ago. And I think it just speaks of uh, when, when hard things come, we have a choice. Do we give up Jesus? Or do we, do we go with what's comfortable and what's easy? And now uh, this is a story from, uh, from Jesus Freak's book, which is a, a, just a book. It's a collection of stories, and often they change the names of people and even the locations. But this is a girl uh, who's 16 or 17 years old. They don't know for sure, and in Asia during the 1970s. It says, The communist soldiers had discovered their illegal Bible study. As the pastor was reading from the Bible... Men with guns suddenly broke into the home, terrorizing the believers who had gathered there to worship. The communists shouted insults and threatened to kill the Christians. The leading officer pointed his gun at the pastor's head. Hand me your Bible, he demanded. Reluctantly, the pastor handed over his Bible, his prized possession. With a sneer on his face, the guard threw the word of God on the floor at his feet. He glared at the small congregation. We will let you go, he growled. But first, you must spit on this book of lies. Anyone who refuses will be shot. 
The believers had no choice but to obey the officer's order. A soldier pointed his gun at one of the men. You first. The man slowly got up and knelt down by the Bible. Reluctantly, he spit on it, praying, Father, please forgive me. He stood up and walked to the door. The soldier stood back and allowed him to leave. Okay, you, the soldier said, nudging a woman forward. In tears, she could barely do what the soldier demanded. She spat only a little, but it was enough. She too was allowed to leave. Quietly, a young girl came forward. Overcome with love for her Lord, she knelt down and picked up the Bible. She wiped off the spit with her dress. What have they done to your word? Please forgive them, she prayed. The communist soldier put his pistol to her head, then he pulled the trigger. Father God, may we have the the power of your Holy Spirit and the courage to follow you when it is difficult. May we have the courage of this young martyr of the faith to love you enough that even when it's hard to follow you, that we would do so. Now, it seems crazy to pray that when suffering comes, that we would have joy. And it seems crazy to be like those in the Gospels, those in the Bible, who, who went through suffering and said, I count myself unworthy to count suffering. And they were joyful that they had been counted worthy to suffer like Jesus did. That is radical. That is radical faith. May we be a church that is radical. May we be a people who are so in love with Jesus that when the opportunity comes to suffer for our faith or to turn and walk away, that we would choose to suffer even though it goes against our inclinations. May we be so in love with other people that we couldn't help but tell them about who you are, Jesus. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the encouragement you give us and the help of your Holy Spirit each and every day. In your mighty and precious name we pray, Jesus. Amen.